This episode of The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power Energy Management. C-Power provides demand-side energy management solutions that help keep you green and earn revenue in the process. C-Power is a leading national provider of demand response curtailment programs that pay you for shedding load when the grid is stressed. C-Power can also help organizations in multiple open energy markets develop a custom energy management strategy designed to achieve your green energy goals and monetize your energy assets nationwide. C-Power is here to help you, to help you save on energy costs, earn revenue by leveraging your organization's energy resources, enhance your sustainability efforts, and contribute to a balanced, reliable grid. Who could ask for more? Find out more about C-Power's demand-side energy management solutions at cpowerenergymanagement.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. Are Trump solar tariffs actually working? Since the White House slapped penalties on solar panels made outside the U.S., a handful of companies say they're likely to add production. Our senior editor, Julia Piper, is with us to talk about those plans. Then it's the news circuit. We'll explore Puerto Rico's utility privatization plans, Tesla's virtual power plant in Australia, the Northern Pass transmission rejection, and Arizona's conservative clean energy plan. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are with me from their respective perches in our nation's capital. Catherine is a partner with 38 North Solutions. How are you? Doing great. Thanks. Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital. Hello, Jigger. Hey. And out in Los Angeles, California, is our very own GTM senior editor, Julia Piper. Julia has been embedded on a container ship in the port of Los Angeles filled with smuggled Chinese solar panels. She's coming to us from somewhere inside the hull. Julia, how's it going? It's good. It's warm in here. (laughs) There's Wi-Fi. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) In the months leading up to Trump's solar tariff decision, Julia was talking to solar cell and module makers about their plans. A few implied they'd set up factories in the U.S. or expand existing U.S. operations. So now we have those tariffs and activity is picking up a bit, although it still kind of feels like exploration rather than hard plans at this point. There have been some real plans, um, but you know there's still a lot in flux here. The exception is Chinese producer Jinko Solar, which says it is finalizing planning for an advanced manufacturing plant in the U.S. after the tariffs, and Julia wrote a story about that recently. So how should we read into this activity? Um, Julia, you first reported from SPI, Solar Power International, last fall that some leading foreign companies were thinking about setting up production here in the U.S. due to the threat of tariffs, and that was greeted with some skepticism. What were you hearing at that point? Yeah, so... Julie Inspector and I both uh, reported on that, and it was kind of scuttlebutt from the floor of SPI. But really, any business I think that's, you know, being smart and strategic was thinking about how they would potentially respond depending on what the tariff levels would be. Uh, there is a first mover advantage. So, some it was interesting to see some different business strategies come out, how bold certain companies were being in, in saying they could set up a factory, others not saying anything. Jinko at the time. Uh, wasn't one of the companies that would talk about their their strategy. Um, and yet you see them being a first mover here coming out, as you mentioned, with um, a facility. We don't know tons of detail about it just yet, but it's rumored to be uh, potentially a facility in Florida that could serve Nextera. 
Um, but yeah, the, it's an interesting discussion because it means that the tariffs have maybe worked. Um, of course, the tariffs weren't as severe as some thought they might be. And so I think that's made this planning process around domestic manufacturing tricky. It's not an obvious business case. And yet we're seeing some companies take action, I think, for longer term strategic reasons. And so those will be interesting to unpack uh, as the in the weeks and months ahead uh, Jinko, for instance, locked in a a big 1.75 gigawatt uh, purchasing agreement. So that is almost more important than the tariffs, I think, in uh, justifying their move to the U.S. So lots of different factors at play here. So let's round up some more of that activity. You talked a little bit about the extent of that Jinko announcement. We're still waiting on more details on, you know, what kind of module assembly factory it might be. How, how big it is, um, how many millions of dollars it'll be. That supply agreement is kind of a buffer for Jinko, though. You know, whether if the plant doesn't make sense in a few years, they still have that supply agreement here in the U.S., which is still a, a big deal. So they could potentially shift shift manufacturing. Um, what else, though? There's there's There have been a few other speculative announcements. There have also um, been some some Asian producers that have said that they're going to expand into the U.S. What's concrete at this point? Yeah, so another concrete um, announcement was from United Renewable Energy. It's um, a vertically integrated PV maker that's combined um, three Taiwanese-based solar cell manufacturers, and those being Gentech Energy, SolarTech Energy, and NeoSolar Power. They have also... Uh, said that they plan to uh, open some kind of manufacturing facility here in the U.S. Reports of how much they're planning to spend so far don't really make sense. So um, it's hard to know what exactly they're up to, but I did confirm directly with one of the members of that coalition that they are planning to come here and um, that the decision was based on the tariff, on the tariff coming out. So uh, the, the, neither lo- the location nor the capacity has been decided yet, though, they told me. Um, so those are two foreign manufacturers coming here. Uh, and then you have the domestic existing um, manufacturers. Um, Mission Solar said that they were going to hire 50 or so staff members in the coming weeks. Notably, they did have some rounds of layoffs uh, in, in previous months. So this isn't exactly a net gain. Uh, then we have Solar World, one of the trade case petitioners. They said that they're going to hire some 200 or so workers by the spring of this year, but I followed up with them after the decision and they almost had lightened their tone a little bit saying they're going to wait and see on market, how the market shakes out. They are still planning to do the hires, but it was somewhat less aggressive in their messaging. When they first announced the hires, the tariffs had not been settled yet. So I think it was sort of a political move to keep the pressure on the Trump administration. Tesla is trucking along with their uh, manufacturing facility. Notably, they came out against the tariffs. They told me they don't have enough domestic manufacturing to meet all their demand. So they really did not want to see tariffs on imports coming in. Um, but they they are ramping up there in Buffalo along with Panasonic. So I think it's sort of moving forward for them. Uh, the thing to note about any domestic manufacturers is there's this 2.5 gigawatt cell um, quota. Those are tariff-free cells that come in, but the we haven't really figured out what the details are around that quota. Will it be first come, first serve? Will there be carve-outs for certain countries? Uh, who will have the ability to buy all those cells? Um, if, you, if the cap runs out, then those cells are subject to tariffs. So there's a question around just how much manufacturing can happen here tariff-free. 
how much module manufacturing can happen here tariff-free. So Julia, just to put this in perspective, we already have bumping up to 40,000 manufacturing jobs. This is for people who aren't in this industry, manufacturing jobs in solar in the U.S. on tracking systems, inverters, racking, you know, all of these sort of ancillary services to solar. But my understanding is that given the growth in solar and the presumed continued growth, that the capacity from even these plants that we're talking about will not meet the need to import high quality competitively priced cells and modules. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's definitely right. And I think even if all domestic manufacturers today could ramp up to their maximum capacity, it would only meet, I think CO was quoting around two gigawatts. Of, yeah, like 20%. Yeah, exactly. It would, would definitely not meet domestic demand. Um, and it's interesting to see some of the foreign companies start to I wouldn't say deals maybe, but they're still wanting to work with the U.S. market. The tariff was not so high that it crippled the economics. So you see companies like Longis saying that they're still committed to the U.S. You have obviously Jinko still coming here. Uh, you look at some of the websites of these companies that have a very sort of American-friendly branding going on. So I think it's interesting that while the tariffs were intended to reboot U.S. manufacturing and U.S. companies, you still see foreign players kind of dominating the market, whether it's importing and finding a way to cope with the tariff or coming to U.S. shores and opening up a factory here. Well, I, look, I think that we should reset the conversation here a little bit around the fact that part of the reason that folks are doing this is because both the Obama administration and now the Trump administration have supported tariffs. And so there does seem to be unanimity between all the political parties that screwing the solar industry on import tariffs is the right thing to do. And so from that perspective, there is policy stability. There's very few people who believe that these tariffs are going away through a negotiated settlement or otherwise. Separately, I think when we went through the first round of tariffs back in 2012 and 2013, there was a lot of analysis done by Green Tech Media and others showing that U.S. manufacturing could actually get below 35 cents a watt in manufacturing cost if it was manufactured on the back of some of the silicon manufacturing that we already have in the U.S. through a gigafactory. And I, I do think that there is a chance that we go that way, and that is where the DOE manufacturing initiative and others were intended um, to, uh, to get people to move their manufacturing to. So I do think that there is a, there is a chance that this is something that starts off as sort of spurious headlines, but actually does become serious, particularly if we can figure out a way to unlock the $1.6 billion of money that's being collected by the U.S. government for these tariffs and, and use that money into rebate programs and incentive programs for manufacturing. Yeah. Do you think that conversation will really get underway in a serious way? I've had a lot of people bring that up, but um, to the same extent that negotiations on reducing the impact of the tariff or working in a larger deal involving previous trade cases, um, there seems to be skepticism around that broader negotiation as well as a broader one around using those funds you mentioned. I'm curious, do you think there's really hope for that sort of more nuanced conversation? Well, I don't know how nuanced it is, right? I mean, part of what you're saying is the only people in the world that really know how to manufacture anymore are Chinese companies. So it's the same parties that are paying the tariffs that are actually wanting to use the tariffs to build manufacturing facilities in the US. And so I don't know that it's actually that complicated. I think that the Trump administration actually has to figure out how to write the press release. But, you know, it's the, like I said, it's the same companies that are paying the tariffs that would 
then get the spoils from those tariffs to build local manufacturing. For sure. Yeah, the interests at play here were super fascinating. Um, I will say one party that kind of seems to have had a pretty big impact at the end of the day, at the end of the day is the U.S. polysilicon makers. Um, there are documents out there showing correspondence between that industry and the Trump administration. Uh, you saw reference by the USTR to these broader negotiations um, addressing the earlier trade cases and maybe trying to remove some of the barriers that U.S. polysilicon makers face trying to get into the Chinese market. China put retaliatory measures on them in previous years. So they seem to have got the ear of the Trump administration. So that's another segment of manufacturing. Of course, there's lots of different manufacturing sectors here. Um, and that, that segment seems to have um, had some influence. Well, and that's the key sector that will unlock the $1.6 billion, right? It's their, it's them, Solar World, and a few other players in the China side that basically have to come to agreement on how to spend that money. So I guess the big question is, what's up with Cineva and Solar World, the co-petitioners, the two companies that actually brought this complaint to trade officials? Uh, Cineva, we really haven't heard much from. Solar World, um, you know, they, they t- talked about some jobs numbers, but they've kind of wavered. What do we know now, Julia, about where these companies stand post-tariff? Yeah, I haven't really heard much from Cineva other than um, they mentioned that any attempts to try and get 72 cell panels exempt, um, they did not think would fly um, because uh, they, they did actually make those panels. So that was the last interaction I had with them was them pointing out that that exemption probably wouldn't work. Uh, but there's been no word from them on ramping up or even really selling at this point. We know that foreign companies were interested in buying parts of uh, Cineva, Um That'll be an interesting one to watch for U.S. manufacturing, because if a company can come in, get a good deal on the equipment, they'll kind of have a plug and play situation and could maybe start up some some kind of uh, fab here in the U.S. So unclear who that might be. Um, and then so- Solar World, again, they are sort of ramping up, but I weren't super confident in, in, in that. Um, they might also be looking for a buyer. So unclear if the petitioners really got what they wanted here. Well, I reached out to Sia. And one thing I would say is that they are collecting anecdotes for any listeners who who have any to share good and bad on the impact of the decision. So they want to really try to quantify and be able to tell stories about what what was the what were the outcomes of this decision, whether it was to increase manufacturing or whether it was to hurt supply chain, you know, the anyway, at any rate, they're, they're looking for more information from folks. Yeah, I think it's important to remember at the end of the day that even when we talk about these factories coming, they don't necessarily translate to jobs. Factories are incredibly automated these days. Um, plus, the if they can set up a factory, at least a module one for relatively low cost, those jobs may not always be here. Tariffs may change. It may not be a massive industry. Meanwhile, the installer jobs, the sort of distributor jobs, those are local jobs no matter what. And they're the ones that might be at risk now because of, at the very least, uncertainty around pricing. So I think it's important to remember what the jobs impacts are here, if that's really what we want to see happen in the U.S. at the end of the day. That's the dirty secret here, folks. These manufacturing facilities, you know, module assembly facilities are not going to employ that many people. We are not going to create the envisioned clean energy economy by, you know, implementing 30% tariffs and bringing in a few module assembly plants. 
It is downstream jobs that are the vast majority of uh, positions in the solar industry. And even if you know you had a dozen factories that were built in the U.S., they're factories that are going to create hundreds or maybe in the low thousands of jobs. This is not a an economic uh, paradigm shift in solar manufacturing. That's for sure. I think it is interesting to have a paradigm shift around. Asian manufacturers, though, there was an article by Jeff Spross in the week following the tariff decision. And he was saying that solar panels from abroad are cheap because of low living standards. He said that manufacturers don't have to come up with new innovations or technical breakthroughs. They just compete on price. And I do think it's important to to realize that the foreign manufacturers are pretty sophisticated. If um, the discussions I had with one um, financial analyst are true, they're saying they can. The Jinko wants to come to the U.S. and build a factory for 120 million dollars. That's based on a capex of 79 cents per watt. They think they can get it up in six to nine months. Uh, you're talking about really fast action, and and they have a compelling technology as well. They've signed this massive um, agreement for 1.75. 1.75 gigawatts. So that is a, a buyer that clearly trusts their technology. So I think the idea that the U.S. will just compete because we pay our workers more and those paid better workers can innovate more. I don't know that, that totally flies in today's uh, technologically advanced world. Right. And we discussed this in our emergency podcast episode when the tariffs first broke. If you do want to support manufacturing in this country, it's going to require a pretty heavy lift on the state policy side. So you look at the major facilities that people are paying attention to, you know, the the, the Buffalo, the Tesla Solar City Buffalo facility and the Tesla Gigafactory in Nevada. Nevada and New York threw a lot of money and incentives uh, at that company in order to attract them there. And, you know, Tesla Solar City made a lot of promises about jobs. And they're not, you know, it's, it's unclear whether they're going to ma- meet those promises. But it's a delicate dance. And it takes a pretty heavy lift on the on the state policy side. You know, if, if, if we are going to encourage manufacturing, you're going to need to throw more money into the pot to get these companies here. And in some cases, it's a lot of money if you want them to scale up in a big way. For sure. In the meantime, you have SunPower that's saying, hey, we already have a great technology. We're an American company. Can you give us an exemption? Because they just said they're going to cancel $20 million of investment. And when I spoke to Tom Werner in the past, he said it would take us two years to build a fab and we just don't have two years of runway in cash to pay to pay for that. So, well, SunPower will be a really interesting case to watch where it really seems like the tariffs did not do a service to uh, the U.S. solar industry. Jigger, let's throw some spitfire into the mix. Usually at this point in the conversation, you say, I think we should reset it. You know, we're looking at this from the wrong lens. And I wonder, do you think focusing on these new manufacturing announcements is the right lens? Uh, Because they are incremental. They're not going to create that many jobs. You know, you're focused on this pot of money that's sitting there. Um, You know, what, what do you think is the right way to view these potential or announced investments in domestic manufacturing? Look, I think you had it right. These module manufacturing facilities are temporal facilities that can be turned on today and shut down tomorrow. I think that serious manufacturing will be built on the backside of silicon manufacturing facilities into gigafactories. So they're not going to be done in Buffalo, New York. They're not going to be done in in Jacksonville, Florida. They're going to be done in Montana, uh, Washington State, and some of these other places where these silicon manufacturing facilities are. And you'd build a glass manufacturing facility next door. Many of these places have access to extraordinary 
extraordinarily cheap hydro. So you can actually see how you make these numbers work, but it would require a level of coordination that heretofore we haven't seen the Trump administration engage in. But I do think that it would be in the United States' best interest and the best interests of our citizens broadly to bring some of that manufacturing here in a way that makes um, long-term financial sense. For sure. Is is SIA in a tricky position here because it was so aggressively against the tariffs and now, you know, from a messaging perspective, it has to support these manufacturing announcements, even though maybe privately people realize, hey, this is not going to create that many jobs. You know, we have to be cautious about this. Like they are, they, they're advocates. So they have to kind of celebrate this stuff. Does that put them in this weird position where they have to laud this activity when they fought against the tariffs so hard over the past six months or so? Yeah, it's funny because they have to walk this line between chicken little skies falling and Hakuna Matata. And I think Abby's been able to manage that pretty well. She's said good things about these plants opening with while saying the reality is that's not really going to do it. We still need to be able to import um, what what companies need, what developers say that they need that they can't find here and at the prices that they want. Okay, so what next? Um, We are recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. In theory, the tariffs go into effect on Wednesday morning. We, you know, we still have some uncertainties around language, exemptions of countries, how the sell quota is going to work. Julia, what are you keeping your eyes on? What are the unknowns right now in front of you? Yeah, we do know that the tariffs go into effect tomorrow. As you mentioned, a lot of uncertainty around the sell quota and whether countries like India, that's on the list of exempt countries, which have minimal manufacturing or rather minimal imports to the U.S. today, how those will be treated. You can see companies like Adani getting a nice little chunk of the market here in the U.S. But uh, we're still waiting on those details to come out. And at the end of the day, when you take a step back, it is a lot of effort going in here, I realized. And someone pointed out that the U.S. on a global basis is becoming less significant of a solar market. So sometimes I just feel like it's interesting to take a step back and think about all the work that goes into this and just be like, I wish we could find a better solution so that everyone had a piece of the pie. Um, because as we as we see all this squabbling play out, it, it doesn't seem to do the entire market much good. Julia Piper is our senior editor at Green Tech Media. She reports on all sorts of stuff, and she has been doing a miraculous job covering the impact of the solar tariffs, uh, particularly on the production side. And I imagine we'll get some more announcements and she'll be telling you what it means in the hull of that container ship. Try to get out, stretch your legs, and uh, we'll look out for some news from you. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Power Energy Management. If you're an energy manager for an organization with sites all around the country, you learn pretty quickly that no two energy markets are alike. How you manage your commercial or industrial power costs in Pennsylvania might be very different from your strategy in California or Massachusetts. So how do you develop an energy management strategy that works wherever you are? Well, it's easy. Turn to Power Energy Management. Power's highly qualified and experienced teams work with you to develop a C-powered strategy that combines the best of each market's demand management programs with the performance solutions that help you save earn, and operate more efficiently. You're happy, the environment is happy, and most importantly, your customers are happy. National experience plus local expertise is just one way C-Power provides demand-side energy management solutions to customers operating in all of the nation's open energy markets. 
Find out how you can save, earn, and reach your green energy goals at cpowerenergymanagement.com. All right, it's time now for the news circuit. We're going to take a trip around the news stories shaping the week in energy and clean tech and just kind of walk through the big ones sitting in the queue. There's a lot of them. And we're going to start with Puerto Rico, where the governor wants to privatize PREPA, the island's utility. PREPA's on board, but the vision for the next uh, 18 months or so for that transition isn't clear. Catherine, what's the argument for privatizing PREPA? Yeah, the argument would mean that others could maybe operate it better, that the prices would be more competitive, and that you would allow some of the work to be spread around. The issue, the biggest issue, and I think people generally think that might be a good idea, but the biggest issue is making sure that whomever is running the grid is regulated and the regulator is so important. So one of the biggest things that the governor also wants to do is disband the entire Puerto Rico Energy Commission and instead have one commissioner appointed by him that could do his bidding. And that to me is the fatal flaw in all of this. So there was a letter that the FOMB, which is the Financial Oversight Management Board for Puerto Rico, sent to the governor that laid out, and it was just today, that laid out the importance of having a strong commission and having between three and five commissioners to make sure that there's a regulator that is guided by law, which is already in place, that can really make sure that we do it right and that whomever is running the grid is held to account and that consumers are able to benefit from that. They should just outsource this to Julia Hamm at the 51st State. Well, SEPA did put together a pretty awesome plan with a bunch of, you know, a New York delegation. Boy, that was a fantastic plan. We talked a little bit about it on the um, Interchange podcast before the holidays with Chris Shelton of AES. You know, they came up with their mini grids plan and SEPA and a bunch of other uh, organizations had this microgrids plan. Really, really good stuff. I mean, is that going to influence this at all? Maybe because a lot of those relationships between the governor of New York and the governor of Puerto Rico are pretty strong, but um, I am very worried about the commission. And I think this is having strong utility regulatory commissions is really, really important. Um, And this commission has already done a lot. They have a good um, IRP in place. They have lots of other rulemakings that are ongoing. You know, some of them are better than others, but there are processes started. And I feel like um, you know, in addition to coming coming out with the details of what would privatization look like, I think you have to maintain that strong commission. How much cash do you guys have? Should we buy it? <laughs> if I have any, it's going to Bitcoin. Well, we could just podcast. How about that? Let's just podcast. Uh, meanwhile, 28% of Puerto Rico is still without power nearly 140 days after Hurricane Maria. So yeah, we can make jokes, but this is this is a sad state of affairs. So next story is Tesla's plan for the world's largest virtual power plant using 50,000 residential Powerwall batteries. Jigger, Tesla was successful in building its world's biggest battery for South Australia to balance wind generation, but this is, a, this is different. Um, what will it take for the company to pull off another world's biggest in South Australia? I think it's first important to note that it's really extraordinary that Tesla was able to get this contract. Um, I don't know that I could get any of the utility companies in California to do it. There's a pilot program with Swell to try to do something similar in Southern California Edison or SDG&E's territory. But, um, but I mean, this is such a huge battery. 
I think that it is going to be going to a lot of the people with solar. As people know, one in seven households in Australia actually have solar on their roof already. So it's going to folks who already have solar and adding a battery to those solar systems. And so from that perspective, the sales costs are, I think are going to be pretty low. Um, they also signed up to finance the projects, which I thought was interesting. So I don't quite understand how they get paid back and how that process works. But um, I think this is actually pretty groundbreaking and it goes back to what we've been talking about in the podcast for a long time, which is figuring out how to really use distributed generation as part, as a mainstay part of actually managing the grid, um, which what is what separates this distributed battery from the central battery they put in before. Yeah, so actually there is an example uh, that was in California where the CalISO called on STEM, which had over 100 commercial buildings with behind the meter virtual power plants, basically storage um, during the heat wave last September to really um, to lower the demand in those 100 buildings. So it has been done just on a smaller level. And I think it's definitely the wave of the future here. There is one word of warning, though, and that is Sunverge, which is another company using residential batteries to create virtual power plants, has had troubles in uh, Australia. And it was working with the network operator AGL to do a many thousand home pilot. And AGL put a halt after a couple hundred homes. And that, that hurt Sunverge. And Sunverge has also been on hold in New York with the development of a virtual power plant there. So, um, just because Elon Musk says says it's so, it doesn't mean that this is going to be executed, but it's um, certainly very interesting, given the fact that they have been able to execute on some of these you know, groundbreaking battery projects. And I'm offended, Stephen, by your heretical marks against Elon Musk. <laughs> we know you're a, a Musk fanboy, Jigger. You'd never say anything bad about Tesla. So let's talk about Northern Pass now which uh, turned into kind of a bad situation. The proposed transmission line pulling gigawatts of hydro from Canada to the northeastern U.S. Uh, got canceled, or they, you know, regulators shut it down. Like an hour after we recorded our previous episode, New Hampshire regulators rejected Northern Pass, throwing even more uncertainty into Massachusetts' plan to get 17% of its energy from Canadian hydro. Catherine, what now? Yeah, so this is exactly what we talked about when we talked about wind energy and not doing the decide, announce, defend strategy, but instead really working with stakeholders. So I reached out to Sam Evans-Brown, remember, who was on our show from New Hampshire Public Radio, and he said, you know, they have a couple of other options. Remember, there were several options on the table. One very cheap option would be that National Grid already has a line going through New Hampshire. They could just add this one onto the same poles, essentially. They may have to do some additional tree trimming um, to allow for these line, this line to go on, but that's a cheap option. That's National Grid, of course, not Eversource. The other option is this Northeastern Clean Power Link, which is an HVDC line that's for both underwater um, and subterranean. It's being developed by TDINE, which is a private equity fund developer. Um, they already have all their state permits. The problem is that the utilities do not like that. It would go for through Vermont. There's little opposition to that. It's much farther along in the process, but it is not a utility developing it. And as you know, remember the utilities got to pick the winner of this contract. So we'll have to see what happens. They definitely have to make a decision because otherwise Massachusetts could get sued for going against their Global Warming Solutions Act, which is law. 
From the northeast to the southwest, over to Arizona, where a Republican regulator is proposing an 80% clean energy target by 2050 that includes 3,000 megawatts of storage by 2030. It sets a technology-neutral mandate that also incentivizes clean resources at times of peak demand. Uh, Jigger, is there anything interesting about this concept that's different than other renewable portfolio standards out there? Well, it's certainly a large target, right? One that rivals California's target, and Arizona is a much smaller state. So um, from that perspective, it's big. I mean, you know, the big problem is, is that stuff coming out of Arizona is just so unreliable. I mean, Arizona was the first state to pass a solar carve-out in their 1998 renewable portfolio standard, which they never really honored. They've been sort of Jekyll and Hyde about clean energy for a long time, which is why it's so difficult to do business in the state. So while I think that this is an interesting proposal, I'm still trying to figure out whether they actually, you know, have sort of regained the credibility necessary for people to believe it and, and and invest in it. Yeah. And the rest of the commission still needs to approve it. In fact, I think they were slated to decide on it today. Um, so we'll know a little bit after this podcast goes up, whether or not they even approved it. I was really excited about this clean peak standard because the three gigawatts of storage, not only does it rival, it blows out California's 1.3 gigawatt mandate and New York's 1.5 gigawatt mandate. So it's a it's a big mandate, but it also addresses peakers, which are some of the dirtiest plants out there. And I think it really puts energy storage on the list of ways that you can deal with peaks in a way that is cost effective and much cleaner than what we already have. What in the world is a clean peak standard, Catherine? Well, where you can replace any peaker plant with energy storage instead. Simple enough. All right. um, Shall we tell you something you may not know? I think we should. Uh, Catherine, what's your story this week? Yeah, I have two things. One is meant to simply annoy Jigger, which is that the EIA's, the Energy Information Administration, just today released its annual energy outlook for 2018. And it shows that the U.S. is set to become an exporter of energy. And part of that is that we have reduced demand, growth in demand because of energy efficiency, and also because natural gas and renewables have been going like gangbusters. And so we will start exporting much more. And that has already started to happen. The second thing that I thought was a really interesting story, and I I know you all picked up on this too, uh, Stephen, is that Nextera is suing the nuclear energy industry um, because they've decided not to become members, but there's a database that they need access to. And NEI is basically saying, yes, you may pay us $900,000 for access to that database. And Nextera is not happy. Jigger, what is your story this week? So I want to talk about uh, Capital Dynamics buying uh, 8.3. I think this is a transaction that encapsulates sort of a long process where First Solar and SunPower ended up wanting to sell their uh, position. Um, what's interesting is it basically um, it, it basically confirmed what a lot of folks have been saying, which is that private ownership of renewable energy assets is um, the preferred way of owning renewable energy assets, that the billion dollars worth of assets that 8.3 owned was just simply not enough to efficiently be a public public company. They were spending over 15% of their cash flow just maintaining 
um, all of the overhead costs to be public. And so you get rid of all those costs if you become private. Um, the other piece of it is that the implied equity discount rate of the deal is about a 7% return on equity, which is pretty low. So it basically means that institutional investors are still hungry for these renewable energy assets and are willing to pay pretty high prices to get them. Is this the end of the Yield Co, the yield co era? Well, I think what this transaction shows is that the Yield Co era is just going private, which I think is even cooler, right? So there's just a lot of institutions, whether it was AIMCO that bought the S-Power assets or, you know, the folks that are behind Capital Dynamics that are buying these assets. There's just a lot of interest from pension funds and others to own these assets privately within their own their own Yield Co. Mine is a story about language. And you all remember Amy Harder, the reporter for Axios who came on the show a few weeks back. That was a solid episode. Unfortunately, Jigger was uh, traveling that week, so he couldn't make it. But you should go back and listen to that episode if you haven't heard it. It was a, a fun look at the the, uh, the politics, energy politics in Washington a year on from the Trump administration. And Amy had a column recently, it was uh, at the end of last week, where she took a ton of heat on Twitter, um, in which she wrote about this fossil-free rally, this fossil-free USA rally, that, Jigger, you did mention in last week's episode, right? Is that the same one? I did. Yeah. So she wrote about it, and she just talked about why the folks who are guiding the fossil-free movement and the 100% renewables movement turned off the Trump administration. And she used the term far left a few times in the article, basically saying that the far left was, you know, really the the people advocating for no fossil fuels and 100% renewable energy. And that was somehow alienating the right. Now, I kind of disagree with the, the premise because I think that the right is so far removed from any rational conversation about climate change, at least like the mainstream Republican Party. There are certainly plenty of people on the right who are having a legitimate conversation about climate change. But, you know, mainstream politics today, um, it's not the fact that people are calling for 100% renewable energy that's alienating Republicans. we got some more serious, basic problems on our hands. With that said, Amy... You know, Amy's characterization, she got a lot of verbal abuse for it. She got tons of verbal abuse, all from people on the left. People assumed that she meant the climate movement itself was far left. And I don't think that's what she was saying at all. She wrote another follow-up column, but she got an extraordinary amount of blowback for it. And I I thought a lot of it was unwarranted Um, because, you know, I want to get your opinions on this. Like, I actually think Amy's right. Basically, it is the far left that's calling for the complete end of fossil fuels and and the 100% renewable energy. I actually, I mean, I've, I've been following this very closely, as have both of you for years, and I feel comfortable saying that those two areas, not the climate movement, but those two areas generally that are very prominent, 100% renewables and zero fossil fuels, are largely a far left movement. And there's a lot of sensitivity to this, apparently. Um, so she got attacked for it. And I'm really curious as to what you think about this language choice and um, and the reaction to it. Yeah, I mean, I prefer to not politicize it. So I was not you know, completely in accord with the way she verbalized that. At the same time, like people just assume that Twitter means that you can just check your civility at the door and, you know, or home training, as my grandma used to call it. Um, and what happened to her was just inexcusable. I mean, you can have a difference of opinion with somebody without going after them and giving them death threats. Yeah, that's that's right. It was pretty nasty. It got really really bad. She said there were veiled death threats. There were, you know, people smearing her, calling her names, like very Trumpian stuff. 
Yeah, look, I completely agree with both of you. I mean, people should not check their civility at the door. That being said, I mean, I consider Amy a friend, and I do think that she gets some of these things wrong, and it is because of this notion of false equivalency. At least for my circle of friends, many of whom are Republicans, they also believe in a fossil fuel-free future, not because they're you know, like sort of leftists, but because they really believe climate change is real. And they get the fact that every time we move things out two years, that the curve to stay below 1.5 or 2.5 degrees is steeper, right? And they get the fact that this is true, right? And they may not admit it in public or say it on the record for Amy, but anyone who really has studied this data believes the same thing that we believe. The other thing that I think Amy like gets wrong a lot on the false equivalency category is this repetition of there is no scientific like question about this, about the earth's temperature going up, but then also reiterating that there's like, that like that the science is unsettled. Right. And I think repeating that, repeating that talking point around the science, not being settled is ridiculous. Right. I think at this point, the science is settled and anyone who says it's not settled is by definition misrepresenting the facts, right? But I don't think she's really said that. I think just as a political reporter, naturally, there's a tendency to put sides to an issue. And so that kind of creates a false equivalency. And that's a that's just a political journalism problem generally, because the climate debate is often, you know, it often unfolds in a political context. So I don't think that's an Amy problem. It's a Washington, D.C. reporting context problem. There are people who do a far, like a really bad job of it. Like the the, the Sunday morning TV shows are terrible. Right. Look, I think Amy is extraordinary. So I'm not, let, let's full stop there. But I just think that when you think about the anti-vaccination people, the anti-evolution people, like all of that stuff to me is unacceptable within like sort of mainstream reporting, right? Like to suggest for a moment that we have to go back and figure out whether women should have had the right to vote or whether African-Americans should be equal or whether all this other stuff, like we should not be able to Or whether Charlottesville had good people on both sides. Like that is just like, it's beyond, right? We've, we've, that's settled, right? And I think that if there are uneducated people getting elected to the Congress, then the reporters have to be very clear that they're uneducated people that have gotten elected to the Congress. But the notion that we can continue to say that there's sides here when, I mean, it's not in the future now. I mean, as of now, there are entire communities losing their like coastlines, their entire like, you know, infrastructure projects that are being moved. The US military is raising military bases. I mean, we are experiencing billions upon billions of dollars of cost right now. Like we can't continue to like, like I, I just, the far left piece of it bothers me and I know what she was trying to do and I get it, but I just don't like it because everyone from Hank Paulson to, to others on the right who understand the severity of climate change, understand why we have to be fossil fuel free. Right. We don't need to go into this that much deeper, but I think what she was trying to parse, particularly in her follow-up piece, was that most of the people who are pushing the the specific 100% renewables or the let's go totally fossil free are different from some of those, you know, uh, traditional Republicans who have come around on climate change for national security reasons or, or economic reasons. And and I largely I largely agree with that. With that said, I do understand where the sensitivity is coming from because the climate movement has been so marginalized in national politics. There's this real heightened sensitivity to language, and so if you bucketize climate advocates as leftist. Um, 
even if you're trying to you know be be uh, more granular about it, it causes a serious reaction. With that st- said, I just think we should stop with the you know the thought policing and correcting journalists and calling out false equivalency equivalency is important, but attacking them and threatening them because you're you know be, because you're sensitive to a characterization is really disheartening and and you know downright downright Trumpian. So I just, you know, urge people who have that kind of strong reaction to really think about how they respond to it in a way that, you know, is effective and, um, you know, not demeaning. Well, that's our show. If you have thoughts on uh, our reactions or just general thoughts about the show, hit us up on Twitter or email us at podcast at greentechmedia.com. We are all there on Twitter, actively engaging. We love to hear from you. And uh, the Energy Gang handle is there as well. Make sure to check out our sister podcast, The Interchange. We have long-form conversations with people across the energy sphere. And uh, you can get this podcast anywhere you get your podcast. Make sure to pass a link on to your friends, family, colleagues. If they like energy, if they're into the environment, they want to know what's happening in the tech world, we got you covered. And um, be sure to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We do appreciate that very much. Catherine? talk to you uh well actually i'm gonna be in mexico next week so i'll talk to you in a couple weeks yeah have a great time down there it'll be nice and warm unlike here (laughs) jigger talk to you soon absolutely with jigger shaw and Catherine hamilton i'm Stephen lacy this is the energy gang a production of greentechmedia.com we'll catch you next time (laughs) 